Okay, Shalom Bracha. So we're now finally starting a new lesson after over a year and a half on the Tikkun HaKlali, which was unbelievable. In a way, this lesson, 24, in a way it's a follow-up to the Tikkun HaKlali. Because someone asked last class, okay, so the Tikkun HaKlali is to fix past. How about from what can I do now to be strong and mitchazek and to advance? So that's the main thing of this lesson. This lesson is so powerful. The tradition is, Rav Nosen writes in Chaim Oran, when Rabbeinu gave this lesson, this lesson 24 was given on a regular Shabbos night in the summer. And it wasn't one of the fixed times that the Rabbeinu had his followers come to him. Rabbeinu had six times in the year where there would be a type of a gathering. There would be Rosh Hashanah, Shabbos Hanukkah, Shavuot, Shabbos Nachamu, Shabbos Shira, and another Shabbos in the winter or in the summer. And this Shabbos, unexpectedly, many Hasidim came to be by Rabbi Nachman for that Shabbos in the summer. And on that Shabbos, Rabbeinu gave these two lessons. He gave lesson 24 on the Friday night, and he gave lesson um, 16 during the day. And there were so many people crowded on his table, the table broke. <laughs> the Shabbos table broke, Shabbos day, and he was a bit upset. And he said, what could it be? This is the time of Mashiach, when the Goyim will come to hear Torah. Because the Pasuk says, elav kol that the Goyim will come flooding toward to, the Jewish, you know, to join the Jewish people to hear Torah. Could this be, this is the time of Mashiach? So that was Shabbos day, when he gave the lesson uh, 50, 16. And on Friday night, he gave this lesson. Rav Nosen writes, Rabbeinu was like screaming the words with such enthusiasm, they couldn't understand the thing he was saying. They couldn't understand the thing. Only afterwards, this lesson you're going to see, it's Lashon Rabbeinu. Lashon Rabbeinu means that one of two things, or Rabbi Nachman gave his manuscript to Rav Nosen to copy and give back the manuscript, or Rabbi Nachman dictated from his manuscript to Rav Nosen. That's Lashon Rabbeinu. My nafkamina is that any lesson that's designated Lashon Rabbeinu, you can be medayak in every single letter and word like a pasuk in the Chumash. Every key, if chaser and yeter, if there's a da, if there's no da, key, you can medayak every single word like a pasuk in the Torah. That's, that's this, like, like this lesson, the Shon Rabbeinu, every word is precise, which is why it's so important that we have the right edition of the Kutim Moran. Because if you get now, you know, like they say, Frankel, uh, what's it called, the briskas, they don't learn the Rambam from the Frankel edition, because it ruins all their chidushim when they were dying on every single letter and word in the Rambam, right? So that's a joke, I'm saying. So here also, by Likut Emran, you can build a whole chidushim, but if you have the wrong edition, you know, you know, chaval, it's, it's a waste. So, but here, every word is measured. Just we have to have, we have, to write, have the right edition, the proper right edition of this lesson. There's unfortunately a few editions, even of the Shon Rabbeinu. There's someone who collected all the editions and shows you the differences between each edition and what seems to be the most accurate of all the editions. There's, a, there's an edition of the Run where they did a lot of research and giving all the different printings and changes in the, in the version of the, of the lesson. So this lesson, Rav Nosen only wrote it down after Shabbat. Rabbeinu gave to Rav Nosen his manuscript to copy. That's how we have the lesson. And the old tradition is that when Rabbeinu gave this lesson, he covered his face with a handkerchief. Friday night, he covered his face with a pachale, how do you say in Yiddish? Pachale. And from the side, they saw that his face was glowing red. 
glowing red on the side. Okay? It was a major enthusiasm because that's really the thrust of this lesson. From this lesson comes out two very, very practical and important points in life. That's why this is such an amazing lesson. Rav Nosen has at least two, maybe three discourses on the Kuti Alachot on this lesson, which are super duper long. One of them is one of the longest Likuti Alachot in all of the Kuti Alachot, Hoda'a Halachavav, which is one of the most powerful discourses on Simcha. The main theme of this lesson, uh, the main chizuk of this lesson, is being b'simcha. Okay? And our simcha, what Rav Nosen, we're gonna, you can see, I mean, if we, if we eventually get to Rav Nosen's commentary, Rav Nosen bypasses all the psychologists in his advice for how people can be b'simcha when faced with terrible situations. Forget about on a national level, like we just had now in Meron with the 45, and we're all, as a national army Israel, we're going through a lot. But what you go through personally, if it's, for example, in marriage with problems and things are not turning out, and as you get older and you see the kids didn't turn out the way you wanted them to, and the chinuch you gave, if it comes to uh, parnasa issues, health issues, setbacks and failures and confusions in Avodat Hashem, you tried so hard, and you were so sincere, and boom, everything just like went out the window, you feel, right? How could you be happy? How could you be happy when everything is going against, and you know, and it's, very, it's known in the world, that if you get even more angry about the situation, you blow up, you cause even more damage. For example, you have a kid who goes off the, who's doing something wrong, they're not dressed with sneers. So when you start screaming to them about it, instead of helping the situation, you make the situation even worse. The exact opposite of what you want to happen, happens. Instead of helping the child, because you're screaming and everything, because you're, you're screaming out of the pain that it bothers you, so the child does, doesn't care even more. He, 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 he has more or less, he has more of a less to care about, about what your what hashkaf or indichinuch that you gave him. You just, instead of helping, it's like going away. And the Rav Nosen says that's for everything. In Shambayit and this, when things don't work out, so people get upset and angry and sad and everything. Rav Nosen says one of the, the most amazing things that comes out of this lesson. Why did Hashem send you this situation? To force you to be b'simcha. And you ask, how can I be b'simcha? So Rav Nosen says what comes out of this is if you know, how can you be b'simcha when things are just so ich and against your will and going wrong and going bad and everything? How could you be b'simcha? How do you want me to be simcha? Everything is garbage. Everything is upside down. So Nosen says, and he teaches a technique how to do it. Now that's the whole secret of this lesson. The secret of this technique is in this lesson. He says, by focusing on the final end, in the end, the final end, everything's going to work out. Amen. Everything's going to work out. In the end, at the end, Hashem's going to have the tikkun done like He wants it to be done. The Hashem's final goal of the creation will, meet, will be met. Everyone will be rectified. All the wicked people will be rectified. All the bad, all the suffering, all the people who are tortured. When, when the final, final end comes, everything will work out. So he says, Rav Nosen, and this is this, that's the whole thing of this lesson, by the way, which you're going to see it's so high. When you see this lesson, it's so high, you ask yourself, what do I need this? I just need basics on day-to-day living. What are you giving me? This lesson is super high, I'm telling you. Rav Nosen says, Davka, it's super high. In order to be able to allow you to connect to this high, in order to be besimcha now. And he says like this, Rav Nosen, this is what's amazing. He says, the things are going against you in life. 
to force you to find a way to be besimcha. And he says the main way to be besimcha is with this knowledge and comfort that in the end, everything's going to work out. You see Nazis taking out killing Jews. I heard a story very sad this week, you know. Uh, I witnessed how two uh, Germans took a father and a son and they, they gave a shovel to the father and they told the son to lie down and they told the father to chuck off the son's head with the shovel. The father refused. So then they gave the shovel to the son, they picked up the son, they laid the father down on the, on the floor, they told the son, now you chuck off your father's head. He refused also. So they laid them both down and they killed both of them, right? You see crazy things like that, right? How could you be happy? The knowledge that in the end, everything's, even this is going to be rectified. This is inhumane. This is suffering. This is garbage. Why Hashem am I seeing this? Why Hashem am I hearing this? Why do I have to have access to such garbage in my life? Lichorah, that's like wrong and bad and misery and everything. Is dafka in order to tap into simcha. Because Rav Nosen says like this, this is the key. If you're able to tap into true simcha in your situation, the simcha itself will bring the solution to the situation. Oppa. <laughs> is that unbelievable? It's not like, okay, Bibi Simcha is like, a, a, I'm sick, I'm putting a patch on the Makkah so I can continue walking. You know, it's, it, it, the simcha is not, okay, so Bibi Tchazik, so you can continue going. He's saying more than this, Rav Nosim. The simcha itself will give you this, is, is the solution, will be the solution. It's going to open up the door. Like that famous story. There's a famous funny story. I said a few times because it's so funny and it's amazing. That Rav Zushan, Rav Alimelech, Rav Lezhansk, there was a time in their period that they had what's called self-imposed galut. There was a time that they went, what's, what we say in English, incognito. They went undercover so people didn't recognize them. And they went from city to city, whatever they did, tikkunim. And they came to one village that there was a curfew. Nobody was allowed on the streets after a certain hour at night time. And if anybody was caught on the streets, the police would put him in jail until the morning. And then they would clarify who they were and they would let them out in the morning, okay? So Rav Limelech and Rav Zusha got to this city after the hours. They were there. And they didn't have enough time to like, find Hachanasat Orchim or to go to the shul or whatever. So the police took them, put them in the local jail. In the jail cell back then in the Ukraine, they mix everybody together. They mix real criminals with Yidin and everything. And how is the cell in the Ukraine? It's one big room with the toilet in the middle, the toilet bowls in the middle, with the stench. So that means you can't daven, you can't learn, you can't do anything. So Reveli Melech was very sad because he's stuck in this toilet bowl room until the morning. You know, he can't daven Mariv, he can't say Kriyachma, can't do anything, so he was broken. Rav Zusha was always the happier one, always. Rav Zusha came to Reveli Melech and said, well, my brother, why are you so sad? He said, look, we can't daven, can't do anything. You know, everything is, is upside down. So he said, you have to be happy that Hashem gave you this opportunity to do the halacha, that if you're in a place that you can't daven, and you have to daven, or you have to say krachma, so you get reward by thinking, Hashem, I want to do your mitzvah, but I can't because of the situation. So you also get a type of reward for that. And he put, infused in his brother, Rav Zusha infused in how important it is that we finally have this to do this. They started dancing together and they started getting so excited and the, the cellmates, which are Goyim and Yidin, all broken, all sad. They looked at them like this. They grabbed them also. They started dancing. So many people dancing. There's no room. So they started dancing around the pot. The warden and the police were so happy to see everybody's happy and they saw 
that the toilet bowl was bothering the dancing, so they came in, they took out the toilet bowl, so that there's no more stench, there's no more toilet bowl. So Azusha said, now you can do it! <laughs> okay? You got it? You see? That's what Rav Nosson says in the Kuta Alachot, Yelchot Hoda'a, which is probably one of the most fundamental, long, and fundamental Alachot in the Kuta Alachot, on Simcha. Rav Nosson is the master psychologist with Rabbeinu, on helping people to be besimcha. People knew what's in the breast of sperm. They wouldn't be paying 600 shekels an hour, $600 an hour, $6,000 an hour for all these shrinks. Everything's here. You just don't know how to press on the right buttons to activate them. So if Nosen says, ultimately, to be besimcha on any situation is that you're able to focus on looking at the final goal. That's what this lesson talks about. This lesson talks about, which is the second point. The main focal point of this lesson is being besimcha and doing mitzvah besimcha. Because if you look at your day-to-day life, you'll see the biggest obstacle in your Yiddishkeit is you do things heavy, you do things out of it, you're disgusted with your own davening, you, can just, you get up in the morning because you have no choice, you have to get up, and you put on your talus and tefillin, and you go to davening, you don't feel the words, and it's not just a day, and it's not a week, and it's not a month, it's not a year, it's years. Years and years. I remember last time I dove in Bitlavud was when I was bar mitzvah. I remember last time I dove in Bitlavud was the day after the chasana, right, right before my chasana. I remember the last day I had a real davening was my first trip to Uman or something. Everyone has something in their back, in their memory, a time that they had, and that's it. And now years have passed, and they're just uh, davening dead, and their avodat Hashem is dead. This lesson is to teach a person how whatever you're doing, you do it with simcha. As you are, as you are, you're out of it, you're not connected, and you start comp- always another impediment is a person's always comparing himself now to better times. So he's always negative. You do everything now, oh, I used to dive in better, oh, I used to do this better, oh, I used to do this better, everything was better once, I had, I wish I, and you feel so guilty and bad that you're not matching what you once were, because you feel then I was better, and now I'm worse. The, the real truth is the opposite. The real truth is now you're better, because now, you're five years later, you're ten years later, you know so much more, and you're advanced in Yiddishkeit, so because of that, your test is bigger. Your test is that now you have to work hard to get this light. Back then, you were a little dimple-dimpled person, and they gave you this big light of Yiddishkeit, and you felt it was you. It was undeserved, by the way. Rav Nosen, Rabbeinu says, the Baal Shem Tov, that any light you get in, 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 in Yiddishkeit, Avod Hashem, no, it's not due to your activities. They give it to you as a gift. Why do they do that to you? So you should taste what's out there. And then the test in life is, yeah, but I was once like that. Yeah, mister, wasn't you. So why did they let me have like that experience? Like, just, like they say, don't give me your honey and don't give me the sting. Just let me be Tisha B'Av always. I never experienced it. Why, why, do, I have, why do, I, do I have to experience it? No, we want you to experience it because that's the goal. You have to get to Dveikut. You have to get to a feeling, oh, like Rav Shechter is always connected and this and that. You have to eventually get to something like that. Yes? But now, how? It's like, a, it's like a miles apart. I'm down here. It's on top of the mountain to get there. And Rav Nosen says, it's not so far. If you manage to be besimcha as you are, and you're happy about yourself, as you are, you're davening ich, and you're happy about it, at least I'm saying the word, words, like Rabbeinu says in the end of the Kuti Moran, just imagine a ger. Just for him to learn the words in Hebrew, how happy he is when a ger converts. And he starts learning Torah classes and Jewish classes, 
in Rabbeinu's time even, now, like 100, 200 years ago in the Ukraine, when he started learning Aleph, Bet, and everything, and that's nothing for us. But the Ger, when he starts learning Aleph, Bet, he's so happy. It's like, for him, it's like the biggest gift in life to start learning Hebrew and learning Aleph and Bet and Gimel. Just see, Rabbeinu says that himself in the back, in the back of the Kutimaram. Just imagine how excited a Ger is that he just knows the Aleph base. And here we're upset that I'm not davening with Orot, like they say in Hebrew, projectorim. I'm not, I'm, davening, I'm not with like big lights. I don't have the lights, camera actions. I'm upset I don't have that anymore. So he's teaching you of Nassim. The reason why Hashem's putting you in this test is to force you with any way possible. And the ultimate advice is to look at the final, final good, that everything's going to be good in the end. And connect yourself to that, to bring Simcha now. And if you succeed in bring Simcha now, you can reach the high levels he mentions in this lesson. You're going to see how high this is. This is super high. I remember Rav Nassim Maimon, he has a class on this Torah. He says, if you learn the Kutimuran in order, you learn lesson 19, 20, 21, 22, you get to 20, 20, 23, 24, you see it's in a different ballgame. 24 is literally like in a different platform than the other lessons. 22 is also very, whew, very high. It's a different world to lesson 22. But 24 compared to the other general lessons of Kutimuran, you see it's a different thrust totally. So, the main point that we said is Simcha. And what I said, the second point that comes out of this lesson, which is so important in life, is knowing when to stop. The normal attitude of a Jew is that when they're given a light, they can't stop. When, you have a, when, you, they, when they give you a green light, you feel like you want to go advance and advance and advance, and you can't accept them bouncing you back. He says in this lesson, the secret for success, the secret to reach levels beyond you of understanding, of Yiddishkeit, of Emunah, is Davka, you accept what's called the Me'akev. Okay, there's a Me'akev in life. Me'akev means like a boundary. And you accept it. Most people, especially when they're young, like it says, Ben, what does it say? Ben Perkevot, Ben Esrim Le... Le Koach. Ben Shloshim, Lerdof, Ben Arbaim. Ben Shloshim Le Koach, Ben Arbaim. So Ben Esrim Lerdof. Okay, so the nature of young men of Reichim and everything, is Lerdof. Perkevot is telling us. The nature, the attitude, is when they give me a green light, go all the way. We have these people, you know, they have a big light, they say, I'm going to stay up all night, and say the whole book of Tehillim, right? And then they crash the next morning. They say, no, don't worry, I'm not going to crash. I know, I'm not going to do it. And you see the person crashes. You see people, they do or and I've seen this a lot. I'm around for 30 years in Breslev. Guys, that they did things without restrictions, not only did they crash, but they fell off totally afterwards. Ah, breast is not for me, Yiddish guy is not for me. They fell off because they couldn't handle the me'akev. There's a me'akev in life. Me'akev means the boundary. And you have to know, Adkan, to stop here. It's like in the story of the... Um, what was the story again? In the Rabbi Nachman's story of the... the Melech Shegazar Shmad, the king who ordered Shmad. It's a story about... The, yeah, right. And, and, and that kind, like, like, like the Moranos, like Spain, was forbidden for Jews to practice religion in that country, right? I don't know the story a little. And there was, a, there was an Anus, a Marano, who was there, and he was an advisor to the king, and he saved the king's life. And the king said, What can I do for you? You know, money you have, uh, honor you have, you're a minister, you have money and you have honor. What can I do for you? He said, 
But if I ask you to do it, you, you swear, you'll do it for me. He said, I swear in the crown. He said, I want to wear publicly talis and tefillin. So he said, oh, but that's not allowed in my country. He said, you promised, you swore. He said, yeah. So he let him that's wear talis and tefillin. What? Yeah, right. That, 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 that's someone from the story, the time of the Inquisition. So but the, towards the end of the story, this king had a great-grandson who was bad, and he had a dream that the, in the constellations, the sheep and the cow were laughing at him, right? And he was very scared from the, and, the, and it was interpreted that, the, the, and he had a dream that, I, I remember, I, the details I don't remember exactly, but the, in his dream that he had a dream that all of his offspring will be wiped out. So there was a, an old sage who was able to take him to a place that if you have a fear, you go to this place, you no longer have the fear. So this old man was leading the king and his whole family to this place. And he stopped walking. He said, why are you stopping? He said, I have a tradition from my father and my grandfather that 200 like, meter, 200 miles or kilometers parceled from the spot, there's a fire. And if you get close 200 miles from the fire, you get burnt already. So I'm stopping here already. I don't want to continue. So the king and the queen and the children, they saw people walking through the fire and they're not getting burnt. She said, well, they're not getting burnt. So why should we get burnt? And the people walking in the fire were Jews wearing talit and tefillin. Okay? So they said, well, they're walking in the fire. Why should I said, I have my tradition. I'm not advancing. You want to advance? You can advance. So the king and the queen and the children, they went advance and they all got burnt and they all died. Okay? What's the point? He knew to stop. This sage, he could have gone forward, but he had this tradition. You don't walk forward. There's no fire in front of me. Still, I know my boundary. Okay? This lesson goes very much into this point. Rav Nosen in the tefillah, he goes into this big time because the, the, main, the main reason why people fall, because they know a little bit more, a little bit more, even in Kedusha, especially in Kedusha, that the person doesn't know how to make boundaries. If you don't make boundaries, you won't succeed. All success happens, well, I can learn 20 pages of Gemara straight like that, and he can do crazy things to impress himself or to impress other people. In the end, a person can fall. Person has to also in daily life not to go extreme, to do things keseder with tzimtzumim. In this lesson, he says that Hashem sends the person the boundary. You have to accept it. If you don't accept it and you smash into it and you try to keep on going forward, it'll destroy you. What you have to do is when you have the boundary in life, you bounce onto it, but you go back. And he teaches in this lesson the key to perception in life specifically comes that you accept the boundary and you go back and the opposite of what you think I want to advance more in understanding I want to advance so what does it mean I want to advance? that means you go forward here in Judaism it's exact opposite you accepting the boundary in life gives you that sechel even though you're not there I didn't advance there but because I accepted to make a boundary limitation in my life and on myself I bypass whatever and I understand even though I'm not there he calls this in the terminology of the Zohar an amazing terminology. It's called mate vela mate. You're reaching, but you're not reaching. You're touching, but you're not touching. I'm not there, but I am there. Because I, I bypassed. I was able to accept the limitation. And because I accept the limitation, I make what's called kelim, vessels for my Yiddishkeit, for my emuna, for my Judaism, for my life. And in these vessels, Hashem then sends this light, which is way above my level. I thought I was ready to receive it. No. This is reflected in many things. It's reflected that in when, when Hashem uh, appeared, the Shekhinah, the burning bush, 
that it says Moshe covered his face not to see. He did that of his own initiative in order to create a wall, a keli, and he, through this keli he perceived what the Shekhinah was telling him. You see, Dafka that he covered, he put, he put this, uh, this covering uh, on his, so he shouldn't see, right? Ram Nusen brings that exa- as an example. This is a lot in life. It comes up again and again and again, and probably the big reason why people crash in life is because they don't know how to accept the limitations. They don't know how to interpret the, the obstacle and the limitation in life. They don't know when is it an obstacle, and when is it like no obstacle that I have to break, and when is it a sign from Hashem, take it easy. That's a big test in life. People, especially, sorry, in Breslev, no, we have to do this, you have to go all the way. People get excited of, of kitsoniyut, of being extreme, and, it, and they, they try to bring proof from the Torah that we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do everything, borrow money and go crazy and, and, do, and do this, you have to jump in and, and then you see, you laugh because you know what's going to happen in the end. And the, what happened? Did you make it? No, I didn't make it in the end. And the, 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 like crazy. <laughs> it didn't work out. And they went crazy to try to do it. You have people like them. Now the person, I have to get invited. I have an obstacle. It's way above my level. All I can do now is yearn and yearn and yearn and dub it. I just personally, I look at myself. I saw Rabbi Shimon invited me up north. I want to take my whole family up north to Tzvat. It costs money. I said to myself, Rabbi Shimon, how can I, if I don't have money, I, I can't do this. And boom, from all corners from the world, boom, 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 boom. I got an invitation. I was able to do it. They opened the doors. There was obstacles. All I can do is dive in and yearn, and the doors opened. And that's, 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 Rav Nosson goes into this life. You don't know when is it an obstacle that you're meant to bypass, and when is it a warning from Hashem, hey, take it easy. I want to help you. The only way to help you is if you stop, build Kaleen, and that way to get what you need. These are the two major points that come out of this lesson, the main practical points. The way Rabbeinu shows the practical points is through this deep lesson. You would ask yourself, what have to read the deep lesson if that's the point that comes out? This is how Rabbeinu works. He wants you to learn ideas, and by you getting these ideas into your brain, and in your neshama, and your heart, and everything, this itself builds the kalim for these ideas. Even though when it comes to practical living, I don't remember these things, but in your subconscious, it's etched, so it helps you throughout life. That's why it's so important to learn Lukutei Moran, but then use Lukutei Tfilot and Idbodidu to daven about these things, because it builds what's called Orot and Kelim. Orot, light and vessels. The light is these teachings, but then the vessels is your Idbodidu and davening about it and coming to it. And the more you rub on a lesson in Lukutei Moran, the more you begin to activate it. It's, un- it's unbelievable. There's no book like this in the world. The more you learn it and learn it and learn it, it's not just like learning a sugi and the Gemara or a story in the Gemara and everything and you're going into it and all the details. This is like Torah with application immediate. Immediate application. If you're not learning all sugi and Yevamot and everything, so from that sugi to connect to your daily living, it's very far. But in this lesson, he goes directly from the ideas into you personally what you're going through in life. It's direct. We have to learn all Torah, but there's what's called Torah of the Tzaddikim, the Tzaddikim of this generation, who are able to give you Torah in a format that it can transform you immediately. That's also based on learning Gemara. You, the more you learn Gemara and Shas and everything, the more you can grasp what they're saying. That's why Rabbeinu said, the more you learn it, the more you can receive from me better. It's true. You have to learn. It's not just to learn Breslev and not learn Shas, not learn Mishnah, not learn Halacha. You have to learn everything. The more you learn, the more you can appreciate and, and get from these, from these Torah, Bezat Hashem. Okay. So now we can finally start the lesson. But these are the two main points, and they're so practical, and they're so amazing, that come from this lesson. And we'll now, step by step, go into this lesson, 
until we get to these points and you see how they, they come out. So now, he's starting from a quote from the Gemara. Masechet Bechorot Daf Chet Amulbet. You have in Likut Imran three sections which are in the beginning part of the book Likut Imran. You have what's called Ma'amare Rabba Barbachana. Basically, lesson one, two, help me, my friend, till 14 or 15? 16. Till 6, no, those are the Mishtais. Mishtai, Rabbi Yonatan Mishtai is lesson 17 and 18, right? So until 16, you're right, till 16. 1 to 16, except for lesson 2, are amazing statements of Rabbi Barbachan and the Gemara. In Chaim Moran, Rabbeinu said that Rabbi Barbachan came to him and he said to him, why don't you delve into my funny statements that I made in the Gemara? If you do, I will open your eyes to see the depth behind them. Those are the lessons that we have from the Kutim Moran lesson 1. To 16. They're called the Ma'amare Rabbi Barbachan, except for lesson 2, like I said. Then you have what's called the Mishtai. Mishtai is lesson 16, which was given the, the Shabbos day after this lesson 24, and lesson 17, which are another two statements of different rabbis. Then you have from lesson 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and lesson 2, lessons from what's called Safra Ditzniuta. Safra Ditzniuta is one chapter in the Zohar which is super duper deep. They say each chapter corresponds to one book of the Chumash. Okay? By the way, Safra Ditznyuta was revealed. Huh? Safra Ditznyuta is five chapters. And Rabbeinu quotes from the five chapters. So lesson 19 is, is from one chapter. 20, 21, 22, 23. It stops at 23. 23 is the last lesson. And number two, they're called Safra Ditznyuta. Right? By the way, Safra Ditznyuta, there's a place between Sfat and Meron. They know the place where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai revealed the Safra Ditznyuta. Buried there also is Rabbi Yossi de Pekin. So in the middle is this grave of this student of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Yossi de Pekin. It's in the, if you've been there before, Yar Baal Shem Tov, the forest of the Baal Shem Tov, it's called between Sfat and Meron on the way. So you have the place where the Safra Ditznyuta was revealed. And in the middle is this cave of Rabbi Yossi de Pekin. And now, lesson 24 till 31 are lessons called Developments on the Saveh Dveatuna is an amazing story appearing in the Gemara, Bechorot, page 8b, of a, of a meeting between Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah, who's buried in Sfat, by the way, below the Arizal, way below, okay, and the wise men of Athens. Saveh Dveatuna is the wise men of Athens. So from lesson 24, this is the opening lesson, by the way, right? Lesson 24. Am I correct? 20, sorry, 20, I made a mistake, so 23, yeah. So it was until 22. So 19, 21, 22, and lesson 2. Right? 19, 20, 20, yes, those are the five lessons, right. 23, I made a mistake until 31, is each lesson is based on an argument between the wise men of Athens and Rabbi Shubin Hananya. Okay, it's important to know the story. We're going to the story today. Rabbeinu lived until 1810. Until his time... There were three major mefarshim who explained this Gemara. The Maharsha, the Maharal, and the Vilna Gaon. The Vilna Gaon, they translated to English Feldheim. If you remember a book called The Juggler and the King, you remember the Sefer? They collected all the, the beer of the Vilna Gaon on the Agadatas, including this story, okay? And the Mar the story about what? The, the, it, it, it brings this story of the wise men of Athens, also Rabbi Barachana. So that it, it, it's obvious that Rabbeinu had access to these works. Listen, the Vilna Gaon passed away, what year? 17? 
16. So the, they were printed by then for sure. They had access. Rabbi Nachman was after the Vilna Gaon. But near the end of his life. Yeah, but, so, but, but we can assume Rabbeinu in the Ukraine, they were printing books like crazy at the time. Every time there was a new book, there were was being printed. He says that it's Iran, that everyone is buying books in his time already, okay? So Rabbeinu for sure had access to the Maharal, for sure had access to the Marsha, and the Vilna Gaon. Yet he felt that an adbir on the depth was necessary, because the way Rabbeinu explains it is a totally different world. They, if you look at the Marasha and the Maharal and the, the Vilna Gaon, and Chasasha were not degrading anybody, but they took the story as a general, like, messer, general message of, because when you see the arguments between the wise men of Athens and Rishi bin Hanan, it sounds very stupid, like they're arguing about stupid things. So they say, hidden here are deep things. And they give examples, but the, the, the knowledge they give is not using every single word of the, of the argument. Here in the Kutem Ran, Rabbi Nachman takes every single word and opens it up. They, the Marsha, the Maharal, the Vilnagaum, they take the question asked, they give you what's, what, 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 they, what were they really asking, what's the idea behind it. But they're not Medayak in every single word. Here in the Likute Moran, he takes every single word and opens it up. Rabbeinu said it would be worthwhile to also explain the beginning of the story and the end of the story. Okay? And it would be worth to give Torahs on that. Rav Nosan writes, Rabbeinu didn't do it in the end. But that's what pushed me to do it. Rav Nosen did it. Rav Nosen, in the Kutel Achot, he explains the beginning of the story and the end of the story. When Rav does in the he takes the arguments. There were 12 questions and answers in dispute between the wise men of Athens and Yosha ben Hananya. Rav in the Kutel Muran opens 10 of them. So you have 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 20, 29, 30, 31. There's another one. And one lesson, he brings two of them, sorry. So there's, there's, there's 10. And the other two, Rabbeinu didn't open them up. Rav Nosen opened them up also. Two of the art disputes, plus the story before and after. What do you want to ask? What does it mean, the beginning and the end? There's a whole story. Prior we're going to gonna tell the story now. The beginning part of the story, Rabbeinu doesn't explain. Uh, he, he Rabbeinu goes into only the actual dispute. Ah. Okay? We're going to see what this, the Gemara, we're, we, we're going to need to see the Gemara in Bichorot. Okay? So I'll give you, I'm going to give you just in short what the story says like this. Roshua <coughs> ben Chananya. It says about him in Perkevot, we saw, Ashrei Yoladeto. Okay, fortune is the one who gave birth to him. He was called the wise man of the Jewish people. Chakima de Yehudae. He was called the wise man of the Jewish people because he knew how to argue. And he used his talent to always travel to Rome on behalf of the Jewish people. If there was any decrees, mitigations, they were so impressed on how wise he was, the, 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 the Caesar in, in Rome, that they loved him. They, they had a big affinity. He wasn't so handsome. He was ugly. And the daughter once of the case said, who was this guy? And she, he was able to put her down in a nice way, in other words, to, to counter what she said and even gain more respect. Okay? It was all, this whole story on, on, on that in the Gemara. There's amazing stories about Yosheb ben Hanani. Okay? But in general, he was the one who was always sent by the sages in Eretz Yisrael to go to Rome on behalf of the Jewish people. Okay? So once, when he was in Rome, and the, the, the Caesar was so impressed that he was so knowledgeable in every area of the world. And the Caesar liked nature, liked science, he liked biology. The, the, the Caesar, he loved all these things. And Rabbi Shua ben Hanina from the Torah knew everything. So once, because the Gemara is going into certain animals, how long does it take them to give birth? In the Gemara, Bechorot, 
it goes into the gestation period, the pregnancy period of certain animals. So it goes into the snake. Okay? So the Gemara, because of, this, of the, the discussion in the Gemara and the snake, they bring the story. That once they were talking, Yerushim and Hananiah and the, and, the, and the emperor, about how long does it take for a snake to be pregnant. So the... Eggs? What? So watch this. There's a, there are normally, normal eggs, normal snakes lay eggs. There are certain snakes that give birth to baby snakes like human beings. Okay? The snake is different than all other animals and creatures in that they mate like a human being, face to face. Normally animals are back to back. Back to back or back front to back, whatever, in mating. But the snake is front to front like a human being. Okay? Ideal human being, obviously. Normal human beings. So, uh, the, the emperor, he told uh, Yoshua ben Hananya, you know, it, it takes three years for a snake to be pregnant. In other words, once she gets pregnant, she stays pregnant for three years before delivering the baby snake. Yoshua ben says, no, seven. What seven? Seven years? He said, he said, it can't be. And he said, why not? He said, because the wise men of Athens, who are our respected sages, they said clearly, and they tested it out, that it takes for a snake three years from the time that it gets pregnant to give birth. They said, that can't be. It was already pregnant before that for four years. Okay? So they, in the argument, they say, yeah, but the... Well, I'm trying to remember the point. You know, it's, the, the, it's very important, this, this point. I have, I, have, I, have it, no, I have it here. It's all translated here. Here we go. Yeah, when the emperor insisted that the wise men of Athens had made it two snakes, this is in the back of the BR industry, you have no story here in English, with Rav Nosen's Likutei Alachot in English. Unbelievable what, what they did in the back. This is volume four of the, of the Likutei in English. Okay? When the emperor insisted that the wise men of Athens had made it two snakes, and the female gave birth after three years, Rabbi Yeshua replied that the snake had already been pregnant for four years. When questioned how the snake could have made it once it was pregnant, because as a rule, animals, once they get pregnant, they don't continue to mate, right? That's a rule. A normal animal, like a dog and a cat, if they're pregnant, they, they're like human beings, even though they can get pregnant, they can continue mating. Animals are not the case. As we said, because animals do not mate once they conceive, Rabbi Shua explained, snakes are different than other animals. In this, snakes are no different than humans. Snakes are like human beings that they continue mating, mating even though they're pregnant. Okay? But the wise men are experts, the emperor argued. Perhaps, but we, the Jewish people, are even smarter. <laughs> Rabbi Yeshua counted. This is all in the Gemara. Bechor, page 8b. Okay? If that's the case, the emperor demanded of Yeshua ben Hananya, then go to them. Outsmart them and bring them here. Athens is in Greece. That's like the, the foundation for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was based on the Greeks, the Yavanim. The Yavanim were the forefathers of the Roman Ashkafa. So Rome is in Italy, and, and Athens is in, Greek, in Greece. Well, not so far, but it's not in the same place. So he said to him, bring them to me. Show me the outsmart and bring them to me. How many are they? Rabbi Shua asked the emperor. There are 60 of them. 60 wise men of Athens. Okay? There's a whole Gemara discussion. In Hebrew, it's called Save Dve Atuna. The elders of the house of Atuna. So they say Atuna 
is like the translation in Aramaic is referring to like a furnace and the shape of a round furnace because these 60 wise men would sit in a circle something like the Sanhedrin where they have to see to sit each other you know the, the Gemara says that they would like sit like a chatzil half a moon to see each other so to these wise men they would sit in a circular form we're going to see that there's two levels huh? yeah and the, and the Mepharshim the Gemara say where does Athens come from the word Athens itself comes from the wise men of Athens because of how they sat and because the, 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 base, the, the base of Athens is the sages of Athens. That's, a, that's, the, that's the, 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 the main thing. The whole city gets its name because of them. So the Gemara, the Mepharshim, go into how the word Atuna comes in the first place. That's amazing, huh? So there's 60 of them. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanani requested, okay, he asked the emperor, prepare for me a ship with 60 rooms. Okay, and in each room, put 60 chairs. Okay? Wow. When this was done... Big ship. A big ship, 60 rooms, each room 60 chairs. That means there's room for 60 people in each room. It's a big room. Each room is big. Okay, so it's a big ship. 60 times, you know, times 60, 360 chairs. Okay, that's a cruise boat. Okay, when this was done, he set out for Athens from, from Rome. When Rameshua ben Hanania arrived in Athens, the first place he went, he's very smart, Rameshua ben Hanania. He went to a Itliz. Itliz in Hebrew means a slaughterhouse. A butcher where they sell meat. Not kosher meat, but he went to where they sell, where they cut, and because it's a city. Athens is a city. So he went to a slaughterhouse. But there when he went, he found, cause he, and he knew to expect this, that's how smart he is. He found a butcher who was cutting up an animal for sale. Rabbi Shua asked, said to the man, to the butcher, sell me your head. The expression is understood because he's, he's in the middle of cutting an animal. He owns the animal and he sells the animal to people. So when you say, sell me your head, what does the butcher understand? The head of the animal. Okay? All right, the butcher answered to Rabbi Shabin Hananya. And, and he asked how much he wanted for it. The butcher said, it cost half a zuz. That's the half a zuz. Rabbi Shua gave him the money before he gave him the head already. And he said, and he said okay, now give me your head. The butcher gave him the head of the animal. Rabbi Shua said, I didn't ask for the animal's head. I said, give me your head. And that's the way they talk. But he's justified in his words. And he paid for it already. He was a mekach. He, paid, he made sure to give him the half of the zoos beforehand. And he said, I asked for your head. I didn't ask for the head of the animal. Okay? I didn't ask for he insisted. I, said, I, I own your head now. I didn't, I, didn't ask, I, I, I didn't ask for the animal's head. I asked for your head. He says, now, it's a problem now. Because you can't get out of this. He sold it. You know, you sold it. And now if you want to take me to the, the court and everything, you don't want that, you don't want that to happen, right? If you want to free yourself, you want me to free you from this problem, to get out of this, start marching and guide me to the entrance of where the college of the wise men of Athens is. Take me to their place. The butcher heard this, he started to panic. He protested. I'm afraid to take you there. I can't take you there. If they catch, they have like guards, like cam back then, cameras, uh, whatever. They had guards. If they catch anyone pointing out to somebody else where their college is, they kill that person. Because they have watchmen positioned everywhere outside. And if they see me showing you where it is, they'll kill me. So Yeshua says, I have an idea, no problem. I want you to take a bundle of reeds, you know, like the way we put on the schach, kindness, okay, a bundle of reeds, put it on your shoulder. Start walking way in front of me. 
not so far, but where I can see you, to a distance I can see you. Start walking on, I'll be behind you, but from a distance. When you get to the precise place which is facing the entrance to the college of the wise men of Athens, I want you to lower the, the bundle of reeds as if you're taking a break. It's hot and schwitzing and everything. You're taking a break because it's a heavy load. Just put the reeds down at that point and then put it back on and continue walking. I will know that's the sign that that's the entrance to the, wise, the college of the wise men of Athens. Okay? So he did that. Rabbi Yeshua came to the, he noticed that he came to the place. Now he sees the entrance. The entrance was devised in an amazing way. They had a very, very thick threshold, miftan. Here's the door. And at the entrance to the building is thick. And they had poured over the floor subin, which is bran. Why did they do that? Bran, if anyone steps on bran, the footprints are very noticeable. So they poured that bran, poured out on the entrance to the threshold to this college. Plus, there were guards positioned outside of the door and also on the inside of the door. In other words, from those trying to leave and those who were trying to enter. Why? If anyone tried to leave, if one of the wise men of Athens tried to leave, so the guards on the outside would kill him, would kill that person. They can only kill a person if the person passed entirely the entire threshold. Okay? So they passed the entire threshold. So then the guards outside would kill, would kill the person. Okay, now if the person was going from outside in, so again, the guards inside would kill the person if now they passed the entire threshold. If you have guards doing that, why do you need the, the, the brand on the floor? Because from time to time, unexpectedly, the wise men of Athens would come to see if the guards are doing their job. If they see marking of footprints going into the building that means who was not doing the job right the guards on the inside right so they would kill the guards on the inside and it's not footprints going out so who did the job wrong the the guards on the outside and they only see if the footprint goes entirely from one end to the other end then they would kill the guards because if someone was halfway he didn't make the other half so you can't kill us and it just shows you the the mefarshim and the gemara how life was nothing for them. The, the wise men of Athens, they killed people like that, like, 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 like it was water. They, they're used to killing people. What? No, but, but they had this set up. And if, if, if one of the wise men regretted and wanted to leave, so they would kill, they had, they had guards positioned there not to let him out. And if they saw the markings fully, so they would kill the guards. Okay? So now we get to a machloka between Rashi and all the other commentaries. What did Rabbi Yishob and Hananya do? One opinion says, he switched both of his shoes backwards. Okay? So he walked with shoes on, his sandals on backwards. So he's walking from the outside in, and he gets to almost the end, and then he walked back exactly, precisely in where he walked, and he went out to see what would happen. Okay? And they're not allowed to touch it. They're not allowed to like, sweep it up and everything. They're not allowed to do anything. It has to stay that way. They have guards and they have guards on the guard. You understand? That's how crazy these wise men of Athens are. There's guards, all types of guards, okay? So, when they saw foot, footprints, this is not according to Rashi, by the way. Rashi says that what he did is he only switched one shoe backward, okay? But it doesn't make sense. It makes more sense what we're going to say. Because the Gemara says that he first went with shoes on backwards and he reached almost the end and the guards don't want to kill him. 
They say, you know, go back. So they push him back. So he goes backwards in his footprints and he stays on the side. So when the wise men of Athens come, they see footprints going in and it's going from one end to the other end. They kill the guards inside. Okay? So now he switched back his shoes properly and he, and he goes now with the shoes on like this. Okay? The guards inside are, are am I right? Sorry, so he killed the guards outside. I'm sorry. Right, he killed the guards. They killed the guards outside. And then he did his shoes again. And then they, they cleaned this. They cleaned every, like, they're, they're monitoring nonstop. They have monitors coming to check what's happening with the brand. So when the brand, they cleaned the brand brand new after they killed the, the guards. And in the meantime, they need to bring new guards. So Beni Beni, the, the commentators say, in the meantime, while they're getting new guards to be positioned outside because they just killed the guards outside, he did it again now and they cleaned the brand in the meantime. So he did now with his shoes on properly. And he got just up to there and they went back. So they come and they see that there's footprints going in. So they killed the guards in the inside. So there's no guards. And now they have to bring, they, this, this happened, this monitoring happened before they're able to bring the first set of guards. So now they, they killed the first set of guards. In between, they killed the second set of guards. There's no guards for that time. So while there was no guards at that time, Yerushua ben Hananya okay. went into the, to the college of the wise men of Athens. Okay? Once he went in, they don't kill him. There's no guards anymore. There's nobody to kill them. And they went no, to bring new guards. The, the, the second part of the story. I don't, I don't the what? I don't understand the second part of the story. That he put on shoes straight regularly. But he, he didn't go all the way. He went almost up to the end. And then he went back in his footsteps and went back out. A second time. But they didn't cut. They didn't go all the yeah. way. Yeah. The they, they can't do anything, you know. Because they, the, the they see the footprint from beginning to end. And there's no more footprints in the, in the building itself because there's no brand there. The brand is only on the threshold. Oh, and they tell the footprints are going up to there. That's already enough to kill the guards. Wow. The guards didn't want that to happen. What can they do? The guy is walking, walking, walking. And they didn't expect someone to play a trick like that. <laughs> That's how smart he was. So they killed both guards. And while they're trying to bring new guards, there's no guards at the door at that time. He went right in. He goes in, he always goes in, okay, no one can stop him. It already shows that they're not so smart. Uh, uh, Or or he's super smart, he's more than this, okay? He gets the wise men of Athens, he sees a very funny setup. He sees two stages. On the ground are the older, white-bearded wise men of Athens, white hair. And on the top row, also like in a circular, there's 30 and 30 if you want to say, the younger ones. And he saw that this was a trick. If he, says, if he says first greetings to the wise men on top, the, the ones at the bottom will kill him. They say, we're older. You have to give us respect because we're older. And if he says hello first to the ones below, the ones on top will say, but we're higher than them. Our hierarchy, we're above them because that's the proof we're on the stage. You should have said hello to us first. And they would kill him. So he saw the trick. So he said, shalom to all of you. <laughs> shalom to all of you. And they said, who are you? He said, I am, I want to see it from inside. Let's read it inside, okay? Okay. When he entered, he found the younger wise men sitting in the more prestigious upper gallery and the older wise men sitting below. This was done intentionally in order to put an intruder at a disadvantage. If he first greeted the elders, the younger ones would accuse him of having failed to show him the respect due them by virtue of their more prominent position. And if he first greeted the younger ones in the upper gallery, the elders would accuse him of having failed to show them the respect due them by virtue of their age. Thus, either way, they would have a claim against him and have him put to death. Rabbi Shua understood this trick and therefore greeted all the wise men of Athens at one time. Shalom to all of you. 
What business have you here? They asked. I am a Jewish sage. He wasn't afraid. He said, on the spot, I am a Jewish sage. I have come to learn wisdom from you. That's what he said to them. If so, so we shall ask you some questions. Look what he says, Rabbi Yeshua. He says, fine. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya said, if you get the better of me, if you win the arguments, the, 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 the debate, you can do with me whatever you please, as you wish. But if I prove smarter, all I ask of you is you come and eat with me on my ship. <laughs> okay? That's what he asked. He didn't say, I will kill. come to eat with me on my ship. And he didn't say, so I can bring you to the, to the emperor. He didn't say that. All he said, the commentary is going to this. How come he didn't say this? Like that. He said, I want you to eat with me on my ship that I have here. Okay? And now starts the arguments. There's 12 of them. This lesson is number six of the arguments. Now, Rav Nosin, he goes into the depth. There's a lot of depth in this. What is the idea of the snake? What is the idea of three years? What's the idea of four years about the gestation? Okay? So he says something amazing. Just this point about the snake is that the, the, sec, the atheists and the scientists and all these scholars, right? They don't believe in Hashem. For them, they, they say, wisdom is wisdom. The proof of the wisdom is wisdom. And you can be the lowest person in the world and at the same time have wisdom. You can be immoral and disgusting and a low life and everything, but you can be a scientist, you can get the Nobel Prize. It's no contradiction. You can have both. So Rabbi Shua said to the, the, emperor, the emperor was saying that, said these are the, they say the snake, which is to be arum, to be cunning like a snake, it's only three years. He says, no, to be a snake, to match the snake, you need seven. What seven? We believe that there's three, which is Chokhmah bin Adat. Okay? Chokhmah bin Adat is only if it's based on the Torah. The wise men of Athens, they claim we have Chokhmah, we have Bina, we have Dat. The world, the scientists, technology, the society, they want to show everyone we know what to do. We know what's happening. How, how does the world look at the religious people? They're archaic, they're out of age, they're outdated, they're not into two things. You see, from guy, Miashayim, Rosh. You laugh at him. He doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't know how to do things like we do. Everything's updated. Ah, how do the Chiloni look at the Chum people? You're so outdated. You don't have a smartphone. You're not up to date. You know what's happening and this and that. And they look down at the Chum people, archaic, old. Eh, he stinks. Don't sit next to me and all that stuff, right? That's, that's, and that's the view. And they say, we know Anachno Muskalim. We are intellectual people. You know, the Israelis talk very Anachno Muskalim. I like making fun of them, unfortunately. You know, they're Anachno, Anachno Koch. When you see the scientists talk, us, us, we, we, this, we, that, we, that. They're always saying, we, we do this, we do that, we develop this, we develop that, okay? The Goyim also, yeah, we did this, and we did that, and we did this, and like everything is their accomplishments and everything. And by them, they think that's Chokhmah bin Adat, and they have everything. But Rishim Hanan is saying, no, there's four before. Four are fixing the four Yesodot. Four Yesodot, Esh. Ruach, Maim, Afar, earth, wind, fire, and water. In lesson four, Rabbi Nu says, all the midot of a person are rooted in these four. He goes into that in lesson four. Remember, there's Loshon Ara, there's sadness. Lesson four goes into the, the midot, the person's midot that are rooted in the four elements. And the four elements, if you refine them, they connect you to Yud Kevavke. If a person s- s- succeeds in sanctifying himself, he becomes one of Hashem. Yud Kevavke, his, his four Elements within him, earth, wind, fire, and water, become a, a vessel for Yudkei Vavke. That's the tzaddikim. The tzaddikim are mishkan, are like a, a, 
a mishkan, a dwelling place for the Shekhinah. That's what we say in the Gemara, right? The tzaddikim are a dwelling place for the Shekhinah. How's that? Because they work so hard on purifying their four elements. They're holy in earth, wind, fire, and water. All the tavot, like fire is the tava for niuf, let's say. Uh, earth is uh, someone who's lazy and heavy and gashmi. Water is someone who's wobbly. You know, it's all the midot. It goes into the island. That's number four. The tzaddikim, they refined everything, so they become a vessel for Yudke Vavke. So Yeshua ben Chania was saying to him, in order to have Chachma bin Adat, you have to have Midot. If there's no Torah, there's no Chokhmah. Yeah, but we invented this car. Look at this car. It goes super fast. It runs on vegetable oil. And it goes super, you know, it goes 5,000 kilometers an hour and everything. You don't need that? I'm, I'm, I'm benefiting society. Say, so yeah, but if now you're, you're, all your Chokhmah is based on, your, why did you do that? Why did you discover it? So I can make millions of bucks. Why do you want millions of bucks? So I can have all the girls I want, right? That's what they say. That's their mentality. It's, Rav Nosson says it clearly. He says, all the Chokhmah that are going, is for pride, honor, and money, and for the tavot. That's all it's for. Your intent initially is for garbage, so that intent is etched in your discovery. I can use it, but I'm not impressed. I'm sorry. You can use it this time. Make, put, the, put the microwave. I developed, I, I developed the microwave, so I, all the money I made for the microwave, why? So I can buy a big house, I can have all the women I like, and I can do what I want, and this and that, right? All these guys that I make developments for the pride and the cover and honor and money for the tavot, okay? So that's etched already in the discoveries. In the discoveries of scientific technology discoveries is etched the tavot of the, of the goyim. So it's not complete. It doesn't have a good end. There's, a, there's, not, there's, not, a, there's not a happy ending in any of it. Where is the true chokhmah? In the Torah. Where the Torah gives you instruction how to behave, and on that basis, you have chokhmah. That is real. That is a real accomplishment, and that we give you a shkoyach, and you get for sure the Nobel Prize, the, the Kedusha Nobel Prize, on the Kedusha, okay? So that's what he was trying to tell him about the snake, that there's four before the three. They say, no, it's only three. He says, no, there's four before. It can't be chokhmah bin adat. There's no three, unless there's four before, okay? And if they said, you can challenge him, of course I can challenge him. He wasn't scared. Rav Nosson explains that part of switching the, 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 the sandal backwards to what Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, Shal na'alecha me'al raglecha. When he got to the sned, the burning bush, Hashem told Moshe, take off your shoe. Switching the shoe backwards, in a sense, Rav Nosson says, is like taking off the shoe. The Zohar says, what's the shoe? What's the shoe of a man? The Zohar says, da iteta. It's the wife, the woman. In other words, sexual ta'avot, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu to walk on this mountain. You have to take off your shoes. You have to be separated totally from the Ta'avot. So, what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? He saw that to get into the college of this Tuma, of these wise men of Athens, he has to lower himself, himself into their channel, their tunnel. He's, Rabbeinu explains this in lesson number 8, that the Tzaddikim can subdue the wicked people by going down to their channel, their tunnel, that they, their funnel, that they receive energy from the side of holiness, because that's how do evil people work. They extract energy from the side of holiness. And they have a funnel that through that bad nida that they've fallen into, that's how they can extract koach from the holiness. So what the tzaddik does to subdue the wicked people at their source, he lowers himself purposely to their funnel, to their sinor, to their tube, to their pipeline, and at the pipeline, he breaks their connection from what they're from their nourishment. Okay, but he says in lesson eight, only a complete tzaddik can do this. If a tzaddik who's still afraid of potentially, he's afraid that he might sin, so such a tzaddik can't go down that low. Only someone who's a complete tzaddik, example Rabbi Shobin Chananya, that he's not afraid of any challenge. 
give me any challenge, I can face it. That's what he did. He switched the, the shoes backwards to show that he claimed himself totally of any ta'avot. Because if a tzaddik has even a potential risk of falling into a ta'ava, he can't do what Rabbi Shabbat Hananya did to go into the college of the evil people. He can't face the evil. Because if you have a potential risk of falling, you're not the man for the job. We need a complete tzaddik. He says, Rabbeinu Chaim Oram, there's two types of tzaddikim. And they're compared to leather. You know, leather, when you work the leather, there's still the, the smell of the initial animal skin. The more you work the leather, you tan it and you beat it and you, you work, you, you work on, on, on ma'abed, on working the leather to become like a wallet or to, a garment or a saddle. The more you work on it and perfecting it, the less smell it has. So he says, Rabbeinu, the same thing. They're tzaddikim who worked on their body, but partially. So they still have a smell of their past ta'avot, but they don't do that. They don't do bad. They're tzaddikim. But if they're faced in enough tests, they can fall back, God forbid. So it's like leather which hasn't been properly worked on. But you have other tzaddikim, that the leather, it's compared to leather which has been worked from all the corners and there's no more trace of any smell of the initial uh, stench of the leather, the original leather. They're completely clean. So you have tzaddikim like that, that they're totally, totally pure. These tzaddikim, complete tzaddikim, can face the challenge. So Rishim Khania turning the, the sandal backwards, he saw that to, to get in, to have them killed in front of me and not me to get killed in front of them, I have to destroy all the ta'avot. So he saw that he wasn't ready yet. So the, Rav Nosan says, him switching the sandals backwards is that he worked on that period to purify himself, clean himself, until he was a total tzaddik. Once he saw that he's not afraid of any challenge, any test, he went in. And he was able to have them all killed and to go right in to face the wise men of Athens. Oh, there's four okay? guards. What? There are four guards. What do you see four guards? Two inside and two outside. Who says there were only, the, the Gemara doesn't say how many guards there were. Say? No? Uh, no, the Gemara doesn't say how many, how many guards there were. The Mepharshim might say that, but uh, I didn't see it in any commentaries. I'm still going into the Masifta to see what it says, uh, the details. I didn't see two and two. It just says guards and guards. Normally, guards men in Mimish time. Two. I understand that. Why would you need more than two guards? I understand what you're saying. Fine. <laughs> Okay, so what, this... What was that fun? What was that tava that they had? Uh, Neuf, immorality. Oh, that's the worst one always. No one's even going What? No, but it, it, he, Rav Nosson's saying this is the representation of this. Let's, let's see it inside. I want you to see it inside. I'm going to read it to you, okay? He says like this. Okay? They were excluded from the world. They never left and no one ever came in? Yeah, but... Like but, but what? Like a monastery. Okay, when Rav Yeshua... This is Rav Nosson. This is Likutei Alachot. What? No, 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 no. Let, let's see the symbol. There's an idea. Watch. When Yeshua ben Hananiah took note of how afraid he was to enter, he was afraid to enter. Okay? When Yeshua ben Hananiah took note of how afraid he was to enter and how frightened he was of the guards. He himself was. Yeah. He attributed it to his not having perfected himself as much as he should have. I must, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, Rav Nosson is explaining this. This is Rav Nosson's commentary on the story. This Likut al Achot. He, he was afraid. He was afraid. He, say, he said, because it, it was a, it, the Gemara says that he didn't know what to do. Like, he reached that point and he was. Because he went back. Went back. Wasn't that part of the trick? Yeah. Oh, you're saying he walked backwards. Rav Nosson explains he was afraid. Okay. Let's, let's read Rashi on, on the first part here. The, the, the first part of the story where he sees what he saw he said Rashi indicates that these guards were laying in wait for anyone who might try to get in or get out this alludes 
to the many assailants of the other side, the Sitra Akhra, who lay in wait for anyone who comes close to them. It is known that Satan is the enticer, the accuser, and the executioner all in one. Satan and his forces entice a person to enter within their realm. Then, as soon as he shows a willingness to join them, they accuse and execute him, often immediately. Thus we find that many have died suddenly before being able to implement the entry into evil, when, which they intended to do. They died in the beginning. Others are enticed and actually succeed in entering, only to find themselves trapped, unable to get free. If they try to get out, they are killed instantly from the Sitra These are the guards which Rabbi Yeshua encountered. As the story itself tells us, if it happened that these elders noticed a footprint of someone entering, they would kill the outer guards. If on the other hand, they noticed the footprint of someone leaving, they would kill the inner guards. In other words, if one wants to enter, they kill him outside. And if one wants to leave, they kill him inside. This is the meaning in, of Mishle, Perakbet, Pasukutet. None that go to her, kol ba'eha, lo yeshuvum. None that go to her, the realm of the, sea, of the other side, come back. Nor do they regain the paths of Eloya Sigur Chaim. He's saying the aberration safe of the Pasuk. Kol Baya Lo that's the, those who managed to get in already. And the Loya Sigur Chaim, those who want to initially try to get in and they don't they die even before starting. So the Pasuk in, in Mishnah, that's also the Gemara Avodazara, the Pasuk in Avodazara, the Gemara explains that in Avodazara, this, this Pasuk. Okay? So he says of Nosin that it was a challenge. If it was a challenge, that means because if Yeshua had to do something beforehand to get in, so there was a hesitation. That means a bit of a frightening. That's how Rosh interprets it. Okay? When Yeshua ben Hananiah took note of how afraid he was to enter and how frightened he was of the guards, he attributed it to not having perfected himself as much as he should have. I must still have some minuscule attachment to this world, he told himself. And this causes me to fear. For it is known that anyone who wishes to lower himself into the medium to which the power is channeled to the wicked, what I just said in Lesson 8, must be totally free of even the slightest bit of corporeal passion purified of all physical desires. That's Lesson 8, Likut Imram. This is why Rabbi Shua reversed his sandal. The Tikkun Zohar teaches that when God told Moshe to remove his sandal at the burning bush, he was advising him that he still had some remnant and scent of physical desire from which he had yet to cleanse himself. A sandal is made of leather, by the way, like the analogy from Chaim Oran. The sandal is thus an allusion to the body, and it was in this regard that Rabbi Nachman was heard to say that one must refine his body until no scent of physicality whatsoever remains. The, the analogy of the, of the leather. For there have been tzaddikim who have broken their desires, yet they remain still like the hide of an animal leather, which even after being tanned retains a faint odor. However, it is necessary to eliminate even this through a thorough spiritual purification. Thus, in his, in his analogy, the Rebbe said that the hide has to be worked over, reversed from side to side, until it is free of all undesirable odors. This is exactly what Rabbi Shobin Hananya did. He reversed his sandal. The idea of reversing is like the tanning, switching the leather, cleaning it again and again and again. He reversed his sandal and then reversed it again. In other words, not, not, like, not like Rashi says. If Rashi says he went in one sandal backwards, one sandal forwards. Rav Nosen is taking on the perush of the other mefarshim. Not like Rashi too, just that uh, we just talking about one deal that he was dealing with all, on all sides. On all sides. Okay. 
Here it says he first reversed and then afterwards he put it back. He reversed his sandal and then reversed it again. In other words, he purified himself over and over again. For the more a person purifies himself, the greater power he has to engage and destroy the forces of the other side. Thus, after the initial reversal of the sandal, the initial refining of his body, Rabbi Yeshua succeeded in overcoming some of the guards. Later, when he had entirely divested himself of corporeal passions and freed himself of all his physical desires, he was able to destroy the remainder. How are we doing with time? Okay, we have to stop here. We didn't even get into the Gemara. We'll continue with finally the, the, the first argument of, uh, that's in this lesson. It's not the first. It's number six, like I said. And we'll try to continue more details of, of this amazing story. Huh? Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is okay, Bezat